when uh, I was growing up as a kid, we had a wood-burning stove. And so, especially in the late fall nights and the winter nights, uh, my dad would have me go out with him and gather wood. Who, who has done that? Who's had to gather wood in your arms, take it in your house, put it in the stove? Yeah, it's, uh, man, it's a lot of hard work, you know? Um, not as hard as chopping that wood, but it's still a, a lot of hard work to gather all those, those logs and carry them in, especially if it's far away from your house, which, of course, our log pile was. You know, it was back in the woods somewhere, and you had to tromp through in the middle of the night. No, not really. Um, not the middle of the night, but it was dark, okay? It was dark. And so you gathered up the wood, you brought it in. But one thing he would always do that I loved that made me actually look forward to that time of the night um, instead of dreading it is that we would stop and he'd have me look up and we would see all the stars. We'd see all the stars everywhere, just, just out like a, like a blanket. Uh, where we lived was on a, on a hill and so you could see the stars pretty well, and it was away from, uh, from the lights of stores and things. And so, I mean, it was always just spectacular. And he would always stop, and he'd point out the different constellations to him. He'd point out the different planets, and we would just talk. And, I mean, my dad, for those of you who don't know, um, is a science teacher. I mean, he's a creation science teacher and uh, pretty much an amateur astronomer. And so, I mean, he could tell me everything. He'd point out all the constellations and, and uh, go into their history and all this stuff and point out the planets. And I mean, it was always this good, good time together. And sometimes he'd break out the telescope and uh, we would look at that together. And what I, I don't remember is the names of all the constellations. I don't remember those. But I do remember the fact that my dad always focused on and emphasized the glory and greatness of God as seen in the stars, seen in the planets, seen in the handiwork that was on display for us. And he would always talk about the fact that that seeing all that, all that, that glory and that beauty of the stars and the planets should remind us of how big and great our God is. And that that should serve as a contrast to our own lives and how small and insignificant we really are. I've never forgotten that, and I've always appreciated that. You know, and and I agree with my good friends Calvin and Hobbes, um, as they would sit outside, watch the stars. By the way, Calvin and Hobbes, if you don't know it, you should know it. It's the greatest comic strip or cartoon strip ever made. Um... You, you should really acquaint yourself with Calvin and Hobbes. There's a lot of, a lot of good truth that comes out with Calvin and Hobbes. Um, and so on this, in this particular little strip, Calvin says to his good friend Hobbes, if people sat outside and looked at the stars each night, I'll bet they'd live a lot differently. Maybe we should be uh, outside looking at the stars more. Because if we do, we have the right perspective as we look at them, then I think we should and would probably find ourselves living a lot differently. Why? Why would that be true? Because, as my dad reminded me night after night as we looked at those stars together, as you see the heavens, you see the stars and the planets and all their splendor, it shows you truly how small you are, how insignificant you are compared with how big and and immeasurable the universe really is. But more importantly than that, It all points to the one that designed and sustains it all. The one who is infinitely bigger than the biggest galaxy 
yet is completely, personally involved in every detail of your life. The one who made all the the stars and calls them by name, that's what Isaiah tells us that he does. The one who made all those stars and calls them all by name, the billions in our own Milky Way galaxy and countless others in the 200 billion galaxies beyond our own, guess what? He knows your name. He knows your name. And it should absolutely blow our minds to know that we are actually on God's mind. That should blow your mind. The one that did all of the creation that we see all around us and holds it all together. The one who is beyond description. The one who really is beyond comprehension in His vastness and His majesty and His power and His glory. He knows you and cares about you and your life. Wow. Wow. The psalmist certainly agrees with that. David wrote Psalm 8, and in verses 3 and 4 he said this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Think of a jeweler setting a stone in in the ring, just setting it perfectly in place. Which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? It's a good question, isn't it? Good, good, good question that we should ask a lot more than we do. Man, how, how is it, God, that you care about me at all? It just doesn't make sense, right? I mean, you being who you are in all of your holiness and all of your power and all of your splendor and all of your righteousness in everything that you are that is completely other than what I am, it doesn't match that you should be mindful of me at all. We should all agree with David's declaration there. And what is the Son of Man that you care for Him? The person at the center of the story surrounding the name of God that we're going to focus on today was also amazed by God's attention to them and in their lives. And the name that we're going to look at today is El Roy. El Roy. And it means the God who sees me. El Roy, the God who sees me. And this name is revealed, and really it's the only time this name shows up in all the Bible, in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16. We're going to focus in on verses 7 through 13. Genesis 16, 7 through 13. A little bit of the backstory here. This, in, this account centers around the person named Hagar. Hagar. She was an Egyptian slave, uh, a handmaiden for Sarah, Abraham's wife. And Abraham and Sarah had been promised by God, specifically the angel of the Lord, which is going to show up in this account today. And we looked at last week uh, at the angel of the Lord, and we said, and we agreed together that this person, this person that shows up many times throughout the Old Testament, known as the angel of the Lord, is none other than the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus. 
And so Jesus, in the form of the angel of the Lord, appeared to Abraham and Sarah, and he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless the whole world, all people through you. You're going to have a son, a child of promise. And Sarah thought that was ridiculous. Remember that? Remember that story? She laughed, and she said, well, considering my age... And considering that my husband is as good as dead, um, I don't think this is going to happen. I mean, that'd be nice, but yeah, okay, um, all right, we'll just see about that. And, and God, Jesus, said to her, um, why is it that you laughed? Didn't you believe me? And she said, oh, uh, no, I, I didn't laugh. He said, oh, but you did. You did laugh. And you just wait. It's going to happen. I'll come back this time next year, and you'll have a son. And so the time went on, and um, nothing happened, nothing, nothing took place, and they started to doubt the promise of God, like we all do from time to time. And Sarah says, you know what? Um, since nothing is happening, I want to give you my handmaiden. I want to give you Hagar, and you can have a child through her, and I'll just claim that offspring. And it was a practice that was done a lot of the time. It was something that was common in the Middle East. And so that's what happened. Abraham didn't really dispute that. He should have been a spiritual leader in that moment and said, no, what? No, Sarah, you know, I know it's hard. I know it's discouraging. I know it's frustrating, but we're going to believe God's promise. We're going to believe his faithfulness. We're going to trust in him and we're going to rely on his promise. But that's not what he did. He said, sounds good to me. And so he, he takes Hagar, and he sleeps with her, and sure enough, she conceives. And when that happens, she decides maybe Sarah's not as important as Sarah thought or as even Hagar thought. And she got a little bit of uh, overconfidence, and she kind of started treating her master, her mistress, Sarah, with a little bit of contempt. Maybe kind of rubbing it in, you know? Like, all this time, Sarah, you haven't gotten pregnant, but look, as soon as you have your husband sleep with me and you give me to him for the purpose of producing an heir that you're going to claim, guess what happens? I get pregnant just like that. I guess the problem was with you. Ouch. And that's how Sarah maybe felt. Wow, I guess the problem was really with me. The whole reason we didn't have a child yet is because the problem was with me. And so there was some bitterness and some haughtiness on the part of Hagar, and there was just tension and bad blood. And so Sarah comes to Abraham, and she says, this is all your fault. <laughs> you gotta love, you gotta love Sarah. You gotta love the Bible. I mean, it just shows that, that this is real life that the Bible records, you know? It doesn't try to hide anything. And so Sarah says, this is all your fault. I gave my handmaiden to you, and you took her, and now she's pregnant, and now she's treating me badly. She's treating me poorly. She's not respecting me. This is all your fault. I wish she wasn't even here anymore. And Abraham says, well, you know what? I don't have energy for this. Uh, she's your servant. She's your slave. She's in your hands. You do with her whatever you want. I'm out. I'm out. Abraham really being a, a nice, strong spiritual leader in the home, right? So Sarah sends Hagar away. She says, get out of here. I'm done with you. I don't want to see your face anymore. Get out. You're done. Goodbye. And so Hagar leaves Sarah. She, she runs away 
from her mistress. She runs away from Abraham. She runs away from the home. And she's out in the wilderness. And she's in despair. And she's probably thinking, you know what, this is it. I'm going to die. I'm not even going to see this child. It's all over. My life is totally done. And it's in that context that the person bearing the name Elroy that was actually given to him by Hagar, that's when, where all this takes place, and that's where he finds her. Genesis 16, verse 7. The angel of the Lord. Again, not just any angel, not really an angel at all, rather the one who made the angels. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Notice she didn't ask, how do you know my name? That's always kind of stood out to me. She, she didn't ask, well, how do you know me? Um, that to me says that she already understood that this was something pretty special. This was something other than just a, a regular person that she would be talking to. So she tells him, that's what, what I'm doing. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. He didn't say, only if she makes it easy for you. Only if she treats you as you deserve or want to be treated. Only if she shows you respect. If not, you're, you're totally out of the obligation. You can run away again. You don't have to submit to her, her authority if she treats you poorly again. That's not what he said. He just said, go back, submit to her authority, period. That's significant. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. This is another clue as to the fact that this is not just an angel. An angel wouldn't be able to make such a promise. An angel couldn't say, I have the power to bless you and multiply you and make a great nation out of you. No, that's something only God can do, right? That shows who this really is. He's basically saying, I'm not going to just bless Abraham. Sure, he's going to have the child of promise. He's going to have the one through which I bless all nations for all time. But that doesn't mean, Hagar, that I'm not mindful of you too. That doesn't mean, Hagar, that I don't have a plan for you too. That doesn't mean that I won't also bless your child, which is also Abraham's child, because I will. He may not be the child of promise, but he's going to be a child still blessed by me. And you're going to be blessed by me too. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. Verse 13, So she named the Lord, Yahweh, who spoke to her, You are El Roy. For she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me? Isn't that incredible? 
And she, she puts a, a monument there together by this well. And it's, it was named Be'er Laharoi. And it means the Lord, the God who sees me, El Roy, the God who sees me. And uh, it was a monument to her encounter. It was a statement, not just for her to remember, but for everyone who had passed by that way, that there is a God who, despite how glorious and totally other than his creation he is, that he still sees and cares about his creation. It was a great testimony to that. And what Hagar witnessed and what she saw here and was reminded of and what I absolutely believe she never ever forgot and and was never able to get over, something that never ceased to amaze her, is what should never cease to amaze us. It's a truth and a fact that was not limited to her. It's something that should be true for us, and it's something that we should never get over either. And that's this. The God that should never look our way never looks away from us. Isn't that a great thought? Isn't that an amazing reality? That the God that should never look our way never looks away from us. And there's no greater reality, no greater truth than that. The eyes of the one that saw the universe come into being in his command, and he still sees everything going on at every moment, in every corner of creation. He sees you, and he has a vision and a plan for your life. Friends, that should constantly change everything for us. That should make all the difference in the world every single day in every circumstance, no matter what. Because Hagar's experience shows us that God sees us in our despair and our, dis- our disillusionment. He-, he sees us in our solitude. He sees us in our isolation. He sees us in our chaos. He sees us in our, our anxiety and our worry. He sees us in our fear. He sees us in every Thing. He sees us. He knows us. He loves us. He guides us. He strengthens us. No matter what your story has been up to this point, no matter what your past may be full of, no matter what your present looks like, God sees through it all and He sees you in it all and He has a plan for you through it all. God is for you. And in in the time in which we find ourselves in the life that we know to be reality and has been now for a while, in the crazy times that we're surrounded by, I mean, it just doesn't seem to let up, does it? I mean, 2020 just keeps (laughs) coming at us with, uh, with fierceness. And it's very easy to look around at all that's going on, to look at the circumstances that we find ourselves in in a general way, and maybe circumstances you find yourself in in a specific way, a personal way. It's very easy to despair. 
It's very easy to wonder, where is God in all of this? And why are all these things continuing to happen? It's very easy to be discouraged. It's very easy to be depressed. It's very easy to feel overcome by everything and all the different obstacles. But what we need to remember, what we need to absolutely believe is what Hagar experienced and what she believed, and that is that there is a God who, despite all of that, sees you. He sees you. And He knows you. And He's going to bring you through it. No matter what is on your plate, no matter what you're faced with, no matter what happens around us, He is going to bring you through it. He sees not just you, but He sees what He's doing through it all. He sees the end result. He sees His plan that's perfect and unspoiled by all that's taking place. He's not confused. He's not under chaos. He's the God over the chaos, ruling and ordering and orchestrating through it all. And we need to remember that. It wasn't just Hagar who encountered and experienced the God who sees. In the New Testament, we see the one who appeared to Hagar, now in full and complete incarnation, walking and talking, living among people, born of a virgin, now grown and ministering and performing miracles and healing, none other than Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the beginning of his, his earthly ministry, as he appeared and started that three-and-a-half-year uh, ministry among Israel, he starts calling disciples and bringing people to him, and he starts forming his, his team, as it were. And in John chapter 1, verse 45, there's this incredible encounter that takes place. I absolutely love um, this account. And Philip has already seen Jesus, and he's already heard from him, and he's already following Jesus now, and he is convinced absolutely that he has finally found the one that all of Israel, in one way or another, had been looking for for hundreds of years. The one that all the prophets and all of Scripture pointed to, he's found him. And he can't keep that to himself. And he goes and he finds his friend. Verse 45 of John 1. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we, and we is him and Andrew and Peter, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. We found him. We found him. He's the one. He's the one all of Scripture pointed to, and we found him. And you got to love Nathaniel's response. He doesn't just jump up excitedly and run after him. He says this, really? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> How would you like to have that recorded for all of eternity as your response to hearing that someone found Jesus the Messiah? Um, <laughs> can anything good come from Nazareth? That was his response. Nazareth was looked at as kind of the armpit of the region. It was very, really close to the Gentile nations, and so the Jews probably thought that some of that impurity and uncleanness was going to rub off on them. So you stayed away from Nazareth. You know, that was the bad part of town. That was the other side of the tracks, as it were. And Nazareth also was like this big 
garbage heap. It's where the Romans would take all of their their garbage and all their leftover stuff and all the things that they didn't want, and they made it kind of this big dump. It was, it was right there by the hillside where Nazareth was. And so apparently it smelled and it looked bad. It was just, it was insignificant. It was ugly. It was undesirable. And apparently too, it also produced some less than savory characters. It had that claim to fame. And so Nathaniel said, Nazareth, you really think you found the Messiah from there? Can anything good ever come out of Nazareth? And equally great, actually more great, not equally, but just equally memorable, is Philip's response. Look, come and see. Come and see, Philip answered. He didn't get into a debate. He didn't stop and decide, you know what, we're we're just going to have to argue this out. I'm going to go through ten points of how I know this is the Messiah. Point number one. No, he said, you know what? you just got to come and see for yourself. Come and see the one I found. Friends, side note, pause on this, side note. Witnessing, evangelizing, doesn't have to be hard. Doesn't have to be difficult. We make it much, much harder than it has to be. Really what it comes down to is knowing Jesus yourself personally as the Savior, the only Savior, experiencing that yourself, telling others you found Him, and when they say, what in the world are you talking about? You say, come and see. Let me, let me introduce you to the one that I have found that I know. It doesn't have to be this big treatise full of all these articulate points. You just need to tell people about the one who's changed your life and tell them that he stands ready to change theirs too. Come and see, Philip answered. Verse 47, Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Some translations, maybe yours that you have in front of you, says, Here is an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. Verse 48, uh, how, how do you know me? He, he said what Hagar didn't. You know, Hagar didn't say, um, excuse me, have we met? How do you know me? She didn't say that. He does. He says, um, how do you know me? Kind of uh, put it in, in our context. It'd be like somebody just coming up to you and saying, ah, and he says your name. Here is someone in whom there is no deceit. You'd be a little freaked out. Stalker alert, Right? And so he was kind of taken back by this. Uh, how do you know me? And look, look at Jesus' response. This is just awesome. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. <laughs> and verse 49, there's this incredible significant shift that takes place, and that's obvious in the dialogue. Nathaniel goes from saying, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? And being skeptical of Jesus saying he knows him, he says, uh, how do you know me? He goes from that to this, verse 49, Rabbi, Rabboni, Nathaniel replied, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. 
I mean, that was like probably 30 seconds, a minute, tops. And that's his declaration? Jesus responded to him, verse 50, Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? (laughs) You will see greater things than this. And indeed, he would. Just like that, a skeptic becomes a believer. I mean, Christ's statement to Nathaniel obviously seems to have ignited his acceptance and his faith, but I mean, how in the world did that happen? I mean, this, this is striking, isn't it? Doesn't it just strike you as, as significant and a little odd? Like how, how quickly Nathaniel went from how he was to what he said? I mean, just in the space of one little conversation, I mean, what, what was going on here? And I just, I have to dive into this a little deeper with you because it's just too good not to. And as we dive into this, please know a little disclaimer here. I can't be dogmatic about what I'm going to suggest as to why Nathaniel had this reaction, why he changed his tune so quickly, okay? I can't be dogmatic. I can't prove it. It's not um, explicit in the scripture here, but it is certainly implied, and I really think it makes a lot of sense and works. And if so, wow, just how awesome it is, okay? So hang with me on this. The fig tree, the fig tree was a symbol for Israel of their national identity and of their history as well as their future. The fig tree was a big deal, big, big deal for Israel. And devoted Jews, especially uh, students studying to be a rabbi, which Nathaniel may very well have been. Again, can't prove it, but it's, it's possible that that's what he was. And so students, devoted Jews that really devoted themselves to the uh, to the Torah, and those studying to be a rabbi, they would often study and pray and be taught and meditate under the fig tree. And specifically, as they did this, this is something that all those types of people would do, they would specifically pray and ask God that His Messiah would come and that they would have the chance to see Him. Think, think Simeon. In the temple complex, when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple and Simeon had been promised by God that he would see his Messiah before he died, remember that? We talk about that at Christmas time a lot. And he, now when he sees Jesus, he lifts him up and he says, now, Lord, you can, you can take your servant. I can depart in peace from my eyes have seen your salvation. Remember that? It's kind of like that. See, that desire, that prayer was not unique to Simeon. Other people would have been praying something like that a long time. In fact, it was a common statement among the schools of the rabbis that a Jew is only a Jew indeed if he prays to see God's Messiah. So this was something that was on people's hearts and minds. And so let's just see it in our minds for a second. There's Nathaniel. We know he's under the fig tree. What was he doing under there? Was he just hot and needed some shade, trying to cool off? I don't think so. Because when Jesus saw him, he said, here is a true Israelite. What would make an Israelite a true Israelite? Uh, An Israelite indeed. One who was looking for the coming Messiah. 
That's what would set an Israelite apart from all the others. One who by faith believed God was going to send true salvation. And they were looking for it. They were eagerly awaiting for it. They were asking for it. And they were asking for the chance that they would be the one to see Him before their very eyes. And so maybe, just maybe, this is why Jesus referred to him as a true, a a pure Israelite, an Israelite of Israelites, because his heart and mind were focused on waiting for the coming Messiah, which, of course, Jesus was. And when Jesus tells Nathanael that he saw him under the fig tree, I think A very possible implication is that Nathaniel here is putting two and two together in his mind. Well, okay, uh, only one person could have seen and known me without literally seeing me or meeting me. Only one person could have known what I was doing, assuming he was praying for the Messiah and longing for that. Only one person could could know and hear the prayer of my heart, my desire to see the Messiah. And so, as the pieces start falling together in his heart and mind, I believe that that's what we see happening, and and we see Nathaniel accepting and confessing the one that Philip had brought him to. And as is true for everyone, that was the beginning of Nathaniel experiencing God's greatness and His glory firsthand. That's true for everyone. Because here's, here's the truth of the matter. Until you recognize Jesus as the Lord of your life, you won't experience God at work in your life. That's how it works. Until you recognize Jesus as the only Lord of your life, you will not experience God at work in your life. And that is why so many people, I believe, that maybe check out faith, that check out Christianity, end up going away from it just as quickly as they check things out because they failed to make Jesus the Lord of their life and then got discouraged that there was no difference. They got disillusioned by the fact that they didn't experience personally God at work in any way in their life, and so they thought, well, this is, this is obviously not authentic. This is not real. This is bogus. I'm out. But it's because whatever they thought they believed or whatever they did in their initial exploration of Christianity they failed to completely or fully connect the dots. They failed to completely commit their life to Jesus as Lord. And that's why there's a lot of professing Christians that are still part of the church, that still file in week after week and sit in the pew or sit in the church and sing the songs, and yet their life personally is full of defeat and discouragement and disillusionment and tiredness related to all things spiritual. But they still claim to be a Christian, yet there's no proof of it. There's no fruit in their life. There's no vitality to their faith. Why? Because they failed to fully surrender their lives to Jesus as Lord. And only when we fully surrender 
all of ourselves to all that Jesus is as the Lord of all we are, only then will we experience the work of God in our lives. That's how it works. That's the reality of things. And so that's my question to you that are here today. And you know what? I mean, I I assume that I already know the answer, but that doesn't mean that I shouldn't still ask it. Have you, you personally, not anybody else, have you ever in your life fully committed all that you are in surrender, total surrender, to the Lordship of Jesus? Is He truly the Lord of all you are? The reason I have to ask that and the reason you need to answer it is because that is the question that all of eternity hinges on. And not just eternity. That's what your life here and now, experiencing God at work in your life, experiencing fulfillment in your life, experiencing and knowing joy, peace, all of it, all of it hinges on Jesus being the Lord of your life. So it's very important to answer. And if you answer yes, if that's true of you, then here's the really, really good news for you and for me, for all of us who are truly in Christ. And that's this. Our Father, our Father, will never look away from us because He looked away from His Son instead as He hung on the cross in our place. That is the best news that you could ever have and know. Do you agree with that? The God who sees, the God who sees, the God who sees you, He sees you and will always see you. He sees you and will never look away from you because He chose to look away from His Son who became sin for you, which caused His Father to look away from Him on the cross. That's why Jesus said, cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned away from me? You never did that before. In all of eternity up to this point, you never looked away from me. It was always you and me together completely. And now you've turned away. Why have you turned away from me? Why have you forsaken me? And the answer is, so that I would never have to turn away or forsake the ones that come to me through you. That was the answer. So if you're in Christ, you don't ever have to fear being turned away by, being rejected by, being forsaken by God the Father. Because He already did that with Jesus. Jesus already experienced that for you and in your place. So that you would never ever have to know what that's like. Do you know the God who knows you? Do you see the God who sees you as the most important person in your life? Is He truly greater, higher than any other like we sang earlier? I hope so. That needs to define us. We need to be like those faithful Jews and like Simeon who eagerly awaits 
the coming Messiah. He already came once. We don't have to ask and pray for his first coming, no. But we should say with the Apostle John at the end of Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We need to be those who are eagerly awaiting the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But while we are waiting for that, we need to also be proclaiming Him. We need to be telling everyone that there is a God who sees them, that there is a God who loves them, loves them enough and cares about them enough to send His Son to bring them to Himself. We need to proclaim that and live that out. And we need to be greatly encouraged. Oh, Christian, you need to be encouraged as you go through this crazy, crazy life, as you feel so small compared to all the things going on around you, as you feel so crushed and pressed in, you need to remember there is a God who sees you through it all and has a plan to bring you through it all. Amen? May that define and mark all of our lives. And may we say every day in amazement, who am I, that you, being who you are, would love and know and care for me the way you do. And may we live differently because of it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation of this amazing divine name. You are, you are and always will be El Roy, the God who sees us. And The fact that you do should blow our minds. We should never get over it. We should never cease to be amazed by it. It should constantly overwhelm us with joy. It should constantly be a source of peace for us. It should constantly motivate us to live our lives for you, knowing that you being who you are, the Lord of all creation, the giver of life, the only perfect one, that you would even look our way is a miracle. And you go so much farther than looking our way. You bring us into yourself. You you make us your own. You adopt us all because of what your Son did for us on the cross. And because you looked away from Him as He took all of our sin on Himself, we never have to worry about You ever looking away from us. It will never happen. Thank You. Thank You so much. Father, may we be different people because of this. May we live for You with all of our hearts because of this and because of You being who You are. And may we proclaim to everyone, may we say to other people, come and see the one who sees you. Help us in this, I pray. Thank you for this being a constant reality. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.